2: Plus. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson show across the nation. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC-877-973-7425. Today, you guys will get an experiment in building a radio show in real time because I got distracted and I can't even tell you what I'm going to talk about in the third hour of the program. We will get there and it will happen organically. Why? Because I have, for the last two hours, been in the Supreme Court listening to the arguments. Well, I, I can't say I've actually physically been there. Uh, I listened. They had a live audio stream of the Dobbs versus Jackson's women Health case. It is the single biggest case the Supreme Court has heard in the last decade or so. It is the case on whether or not to overrule reverse Roe v. Wade and Casey. I want to spend a little while talking about what I heard in the oral arguments and what I think is likely to play out having been a lawyer. uh, I can navigate this for you a little bit, but I need to do something very hyper-local. So my apologies to everyone in every part of the country, including Georgia, not named Atlanta. But um, since I live around these parts, I want to say something very quickly before I get into Dobbs. Atlanta has a mayor-elect. Andre Dickens. It is notable that the north side of Atlanta, Buckhead, uh, wants to secede from the city because the current mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, has caused a crime wave in the city that is not getting any better. The whole place wants to, to leave the city. And at the very end of the runoff for a mayor in Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms endorsed Andre Dickens the winner. And every, every precinct in Buckhead went for the loser. The president of the city council is more. Now I will tell you, Andre Dickens is the only one who ran, who had private sector experience. He's a chemical engineer by training, worked in the private sector, uh, got elected on the city council in Atlanta. And I just want to say this before I move on to national topics. Uh, Mayor-elect Dickens. Sometimes, as you know, you have to build bridges with people with whom you owe nothing. And to save your city, you're going to have to build bridges with the people of Buckhead who just rejected you. And it's going to have to be on you. This is not going to be on them because they have a way out. Uh, their side controls the state legislature. And they can buck the city and do their own thing. And that would be disastrous for your city if it happens. So keep them safe. Reach out to them in meaningful dialogue. Build some bridges with them. And you might be able to undo the damage done by the prior administration. Your relationships with people you don't think you need a relationship with matter now more than ever. All right. We will move on. Uh, to the Supreme Court, first of all, I got to tell you um, up front, if you want my hottest of hot takes on the Supreme Court, I'm opposed to live broadcasts of the Supreme Court. In fact, I don't think there should be cameras in the United States Congress. It allows for performance art. You have the people in the cameras performing for their constituents at home. And it's just absurd. Congressional hearings are now all about playing to the cameras, not actually about uh, meaningful uh, decision-making by Congress. It's why you get to where we are now with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, and the like. Uh, they're, they're playing for the crowd on the cameras. They're not actually legislating, uh, none of them are very accomplished in legislation. And don't say that those Republican members can't get things done because some members of the House Freedom Caucus were able to persuade the Democrats to do things with PPP and improve the situation for people whose businesses uh, were shut down because of COVID, but not them. They're too busy pandering to the base nationally instead of actually doing work for their constituents, Democrats and Republicans alike. I think cameras in the courtroom would allow performance art. We got a taste of that with Sonia Sotomayor today in the audio, the live stream audio, where she essentially was filibustering on behalf of Planned Parenthood. She was just reading talking points. She was barely asking any questions. She is not the brightest justice, and it is actually well known in legal circles. And in fact, uh, the leaked documents from the Obama administration showed that a lot of people within the progressive legal community were begging Barack Obama not to pick her because she was too combative as a judge and not very bright. And he picked her because he was trying to uh, pick up the Hispanic vote. It was entirely a play based on demographic politics, not on who would be the best justice. It played out today where she largely undermined her case comparing a fetus to a brain-dead person. If I had to call it, and you you actually learn very little from the oral arguments, which you need to understand about these cases, particularly this case, you need to understand something. This was not a case where the lawyers were trying to persuade the United States Supreme Court. You've you got to philosophically, if you go back and you listen to the audio, What you need to understand is that what happened for the last two hours in the United States Supreme Court was not lawyers trying to persuade the Supreme Court to go in their direction. It was the justices having a conversation amongst themselves through the lawyers trying to persuade each other. You saw, for example, Chief Justice John Roberts throwing out a standard other than viability. John Roberts very clearly does not think that Casey and Roe are good law. But John Roberts also very clearly does not want to overrule and reverse Casey and Roe. Casey and Roe together set a a standard for abortion on viability. With Roe, it was the three trimesters. Casey modified it to the point of viability. The problem for abortion advocates is that viability has moved back earlier and earlier and earlier, from 26 weeks to 25 weeks, 24 weeks to 23 weeks, 22. Now you, 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 there, it is not unheard of to get a 21-week uh, preemie who can survive. So the viability standard keeps moving because of the science. So John Roberts' argument on moving viability to some other standard makes sense if you want to upend Roe without also reversing Roe. Amy Cody Barrett, and by the way, I'm not dealing with Sotomayor, Breyer, and Kagan because they very clearly don't want to do anything. Most interesting to me was how silent Kagan was in the arguments today. Kagan knows the left has a problem. The votes are there to end Roe and Casey. What Kagan did in the entire or argument herself was to, through the lawyers, have a conversation with Brett Kavanaugh and John Roberts, Roberts about the viability standard and why the standard he wants wouldn't work, and with Kavanaugh, why his concerns about stary decisis were misplaced. Now, for those of you who want to know stary decisis, real quick, stary decisis is for suckers, as a friend of mine would say. Stare decisis means uh, you go with the precedence of the court. You don't just upend the precedence of the court. It took the court 50 years to overrule Plessy versus Ferguson, not because the court didn't realize it hadn't made a mistake, but because it needed to do so gradually to upend Plessy versus Ferguson. It just does not like to overrule itself or reverse itself because of its credibility. So Sotomayor the entire time was screaming about the court's credibility. Breyer about stare decisis and Kagan about stare decisis and viability, that suggests to me in their line of arguments they know that the six members of the court's majority intend to take action against abortion. But what is that actually going to be? Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito very clearly want to kill Roe and Casey. Neil Gorsuch, it seems, is with them on that, that he just thinks it's bad law. He doesn't care about abortion, He just thinks Casey and Roe are terribly, terribly uh, decided cases. And frankly, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg agreed with them on that. Kavanaugh is interesting because Kavanaugh thinks that the court taking a position on abortion makes the court not a neutral arbiter on what is, for all intents and purposes, a moral decision. The court repeatedly wanted to re, uh, rely on secular jurisprudence and secular scientists, and Cavanaugh and was really having none of it. There, um, saying, you know, that there are secular people who also believe that life begins at conception. Science itself says life of some kind begins at conception. If we think that the prior precedents of Roe and Casey are seriously wrong, if that, why then doesn't the history of this court pra- court's practice? suggests that the right answer is to return to the position of neutrality. That's Kavanaugh. It sounds very much like Kavanaugh wants to get rid of the court's dealings with abortion. So really, you have Chief Justice Roberts, whose wife is a pro-life activist, who clearly wants to get rid of the standard of Casey and Roe, that his entire line of questioning was on the viability standard. And what should they do to reduce the viability standard without getting rid of Roe and Casey? So you've already got him wanting to reduce the role of Roe and Casey. You have Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas, who clearly are just ready to scrap it. You have Kavanaugh, who seems like he too is in that camp. So that's Kavanaugh, Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch. That's four. You need one more vote. Enter Amy Cody Barrett. One of the big arguments in Casey and Roe is that the parent, it's about the parenthood interest. It's not a pregnancy interest, it's a parenthood interest. And Barrett actually picked up on this. It's something that a lot of opponents and advocates of abortion, miss, that the Casey Rowe standard there is a parenthood interest, not a pregnancy interest, that some people have no interest in parenthood and should have the right to terminate the pregnancy uh, prior to viability to avoid being uh, burdened by the obligations of parenthood. And Barrett hit on the fact that uh, adoption is now so widespread and and you can even adopt a fetus that survives abortion that is injured. You can immediately promptly adopt that in many states. Uh, Barrett's was very intriguing because she wanted to separate pregnancy and parenthood. And that suggests to me that what Amy Coney Barrett wants to do is to get rid of Roe as, as minimally as possible. And by that, I mean, if you just with a broad brush get rid of Casey and Roe, there are a lot of legal precedents as well that begin to collapse, Unless you, depending on how you do it. And even with Clarence Thomas, you could tell. Clarence Thomas has no love loss with Obergefell, Lawrence v. Texas, things like that. Uh, the cases on, for example, um, sodomy and homosexual marriage and the like, he, he doesn't care about gay marriage or, or – um, non-marital sexual relations between people of the same sex. Uh, he cared greatly at one point. The courts moved on. How do you get rid of Roe and Casey without also upending those cases? He talked about a lot about the liberty interest and the privacy interest and then the interest of the other party. And there, I think, is where they line up. That the three liberal justices would have you forget that there is a third party involved in the matter. It's not just the male and the female who is pregnant, but the child as well. And Thomas has been fairly outspoken that he suggests the 14th Amendment would give legal protections to an unborn child. The other justices are not so far there. But Kavanaugh and Barrett and Gorsuch seem to recognize that you cannot ignore that the child is a living organism, and that living organism, because it is a human organism, is entitled to some level of protection. Viable or not, if life begins at conception, there's a level of protection needed for that life who cannot itself argue in court. So that suggests to me, and again, oral arguments are a bad predictor of where we're headed. But in this case, keep in mind, this is unlike most oral arguments because you're not, you can't persuade these justices on the issue of abortion. You can't argue something that hasn't been argued before. So what this case became in oral arguments today was not a matter of lawyers trying to persuade the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court justices in public having a conversation between themselves on where they should draw the line and how they should dispatch two cases. And the three justices of the left trying to convince them it would be bad to get rid of it altogether. The chief justice trying to convey that in the interest of the court, maybe they should get rid of it without getting rid of it. And the others trying to figure out exactly how do we get rid of it and minimize the fallout from so doing, so that we're not constantly revisit, revisiting the issue. And three of those suggesting they don't care, just get rid of it. That suggests at least five members of the U.S. Supreme Court are right now behind closed doors preparing to eliminate Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. I am very happy to answer any of your questions about this. We've obviously got other stuff to talk about, but I I just think it's important to um, talk about this. Now, Jim, what did you say? I, I missed what you said to me. Ah, okay. Yep, I will get there as well. Thank you. Um, what you need to really understand, though, more than anything, particularly if you go back, you can go to the Supreme Court's website and you can listen to the oral argument of this Dobbs versus Women Jackson Women's Health case what you really, truly, genuinely must understand is that in a normal situation, the lawyers are there to answer the questions of the justices and seek to persuade them that their side is right. Most normal cases go that way. In the big cases, they're there to help the justices decide how to formulate rules. And in the biggest cases, like this case, there's no way... For them to persuade the justices. The justices already know the cases and the law better than anyone who's up there arguing. The lawyers in these cases serve as a conduit. The justices have not discussed the case prior to now behind closed doors. This is the first time they've discussed it with each other. And they're having a conversation with each other, but they're not allowed to do that. So they use the lawyers. To have that conversation. Each justice asking a question of the lawyer, not to draw out an answer from the lawyer to the question, but to combat, rebut, or enhance a point made by another justice to try to get them to think. And it was very clear more than anything uh, that the liberal justices were trying to persuade Chief Justice Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh more than the others I'm actually more concerned about Amy Coney Barrett than I am John Roberts. John Roberts, I think, if he was given the choice, would preserve Roe and Casey technically while gutting them. And he very clearly does not want the viability standard to be the standard. He wants to roll back the viability standard. The question is how to do it because he does have an obligation To preserve the integrity of the court as its chief justice. And Sotomayor's entire argument the entire time was about politicizing the court and ending the credibility of the court if you end Roe versus Wade. Um, That's part of the problem there. So now when we come back, I will take your phone calls. I will tell you about a great deal from Omaha Steaks because I should have done that now and forgot. But I'll tell you about all of these things and take your phone calls and answer your questions on this issue when we come back. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877 97 Eric, 877 973 7425. The Supreme Court talked about or argued the Dobbs case today. Been talking about that. There are some other implications. Some people have questions. I'm happy to take your questions about what was said, what was heard, where you think things are headed. I do want to talk about uh, what this will do to the bases of the parties and the activists. Now, I want to answer some phone calls. Uh, Ed, you're going to be first. Welcome to the program, Ed.
1: Hey, Eric, thanks for taking my call, and thanks for all the great work you're doing. Thank you. Um, question, I, I didn't listen to the Supreme Court argument. You have your lawyer. The, I guess my question is the difference between a person and a human. We know that the fetus is a human. but It doesn't mean it has rights. Right. Can the argument kind of, kind of sway itself toward, yes, it's humans, but not all humans have the same rights because well, you know, personal rights.
2: As a matter of fact, it's very interesting that you should say that uh, or ask that question because uh, let me read you uh, article or section one of the Fourteenth Amendment. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and the states wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property Without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protections of the law. Justice Thomas very clearly in his questioning embraces the personhood doctrine. That is, that a fetus is a human being that is alive in a form and therefore has the personhood interest and cannot be deprived of life or liberty without due process of law. Justice Kavanaugh was flat out dismissive of that argument. So I don't think you're gonna see the Supreme Court go there, but it sounds like Alito and Thomas would go there if they could.
1: Well, then it's been our history in the United States and history around the world that not all people are humans. Oh, I'm sorry, reverse that. Not all humans are people. Some people don't have rights. And, and I guess morality can change from place to place. And if we decide that, that fetus is, can't disagree with the science, it's human but it doesn't have personal rights, then it doesn't fall on the 14th Amendment.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and that's one of the complicating things. You have to be very careful in articulating this argument, though, because that was also the argument in Dred Scott, uh, that uh, black fact- slaves were not actually persons. They were human beings, but they were not people. And the court wants to tread very carefully along that uh, through that path because they don't want to make another Dred Scott argument, which to some degree... If we're honest, uh, a lot of the pro-abortion arguments do border on that, that uh, a fetus is not actually a person. It may be human, but it isn't person. Therefore, it doesn't have the rights of a person in personhood. Uh, I think if Justice Thomas – go ahead.
1: That would do away with an ambiguity about it. And that way the pro-abortionist can say, yes, it's human. You can't look the other way. Science is science but it doesn't have rights yet. It's not whatever they consider. Right, and that sounds like where Kagan
2: and Breyer wanted to go. Sotomayor uh, actually compared a fetus to a brain-dead person and noted that when you perform uh, non-anesthetized work on a brain-dead person, the body flinches and moves as if it's in pain, but the person's brain-dead. I don't know that that was the analogy she should have done. it. It kind of incited Amy Coney Barrett just in the tone of her voice. Uh, when they then jump to her with questioning. Um, but yeah, you're right. You do have to be very careful, though, on the personhood interest. Justice Thomas very much wants the personhood interest. A lot of people within the pro-life community argue that a fetus being a human is a person. The problem here is the language, the explicit plain text language of the 14th Amendment, all persons born. They haven't been born yet. So is it a person who gets the rights or a person born who gets the rights? That's part of the conundrum there. Uh, now let's see. Is it, uh, Kara or Car- 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 Carol, you're going to be up next. Carl. It's Carl. Carl. Thanks I'm sorry. Carl. My call screeter misspelled it. It's his fault.
0: Okay. Uh, I think the whole point has been missed on Roe v. Wade for, for years. When the Supreme Court created that decision using the 14th Amendment by basically declaring equal protection, they neglected a very important part of the Constitution, that being the preamble. The preamble establishes everything that's to come afterward and who it's to apply to. And the preamble clearly states that everything to follow is for ourselves and our posterity. Our posterity are our children, in other words, the unborn. I believe the founding fathers established it in the in the preamble that everything in the constitution that follows is going to apply to quote ourselves and our posterity. And there is where, if anything, the 14th amendment should dovetail back into the preamble and say, yeah, equal protection is including our posterity. It, so,
2: it, yes. Um, it, there, there is one problem, however, um, so the Supreme Court is bound by the precedence of the Supreme Court, whether we like it or not. Uh, and the Supreme Court actually held fairly early on in uh, its court history that the preamble is not legally binding, that there's no legal power that comes from the um from the the power from the preamble. Uh, the preamble, in fact, wasn't even really subject to extensive debate in the Congress, according to James Madison's Diaries. Uh, and Alexander Hamilton noted in Federalist, uh, I think, 84, that um, the the preamble obviously made the case for a Bill of Rights because it itself did not serve as a Bill of Rights. And then the Supreme Court cited the preamble in a number of decisions, but also those decisions going all the way back to McCullough versus Maryland. Uh, one of the very earliest cases uh, of the Supreme Court that was in 1819 noted that there actually is no power in the preamble. Uh, Martin versus Hunter's Lessee, I believe it was 1816, and then the big one was Chisholm versus Georgia. Actually, uh, in uh, that was 1793, I think it was. Oh, when was Chisholm? Uh, blah, 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 blah i think chisholm was actually one of the first big court case it would have been in the late 70s i can't remember the date i think it's 18 1793 or so chisholm versus georgia actually the court made clear that uh quoting the the, the preamble but also giving no power to the preamble so it's actually pretty well settled law uh that you can't cite the preamble to define your rights and going back to the federalist papers alexander hamilton saying the preamble necessitated a Bill of Rights to capture the rights argued or referenced in the preamble. Now, all that being said, where does this go? Here's the problem, and it's something uh, more and more people are starting to note. Let me give you some history here. In the 1970s, believe it or not, Roe versus Wade was not actually a, a, a highly noted decision. If I remember right, uh, Roe versus Wade came on the same day Lyndon Johnson died, and that news overshadowed it. Uh, It was not a monumental decision. Uh, In fact, a lot of evangelical churches, Southern Baptist churches, Billy Graham in particular, uh, really didn't care about abortion in the early 1970s. It took a Catholic legal theory and uh, the Catholic bishops to make it a moral case that transcended Catholicism and was embraced by the larger Protestant churches in in America, including the Southern Baptist Convention. It became then a rallying cry as the moral majority came into into force with Ronald Reagan's rise. Ronald Reagan had earlier been pro-abortion to actually make life a galvanizing decision. Now, part of this was, contrary to some of the early history you hear on this, there was also a, a legal movement rising on the right that the Supreme Court had been putting stuff into the Constitution based on the popular zeitgeist of the day that wasn't actually in the Constitution, divining rights in the Constitution that weren't there. These two things all came to a head towards the rise of Ronald Reagan's presidency. Uh, Ed Meese, being his attorney general, who was very pro life, uh, but also of the legal, the, the textualist, originalist legal theory. And over time, it became a galvanizing force for Republicans. And uh, the pro abortion crowd was very quickly moving to the Democratic side. In the 1980s, Republicans began to hit on a legal strategy that they would put justices on the United States Supreme Court who took the originalist textualist view. The originalist view means that you read the words of the Constitution as would have been read at the time it was written. Now, that doesn't mean that you take, for example, uh, the 22nd, 23rd, 24th Amendment that were written in the 1900s, and you read them in the way they would have been read in the 1790s. No, you you read each amendment and the text of the Constitution in the way it would have been at the time of the founding. So now, for example, uh, you go to the 14th Amendment. the 14th Amendment, Uh, There were, what, 39 states in the union, I think, at the time of the 14th Amendment, and 30 of them explicitly banned abortion. Uh, The rest of them uh, didn't ban it outright, uh, but it wasn't done, regulated out of existence, so to speak. So to then jump forward to the 1970s and say, well, the 14th Amendment contemplates an abortion right, the textualists and the originalists thought this is absurd. You can't now pull a right out of a non-living document Uh, when we know explicitly the right was not a right at the time that amendment was written, that began a 40-year movement to pack the courts with judges and justices who were committed to the plain text of the document on the argument that every American should be able to understand his constitution, therefore everyone should be able to plainly read the constitution and define the rights, privileges, obligations, duties, and separation of powers therein. This is the culmination of that. You have the Federalist Society as a clearinghouse for good conservative originalist textualist judges. You now have a Supreme Court that has six Republican-appointed justices, all of whom come from that Federalist originalist textualist tradition. Even Elena Kagan, an Obama appointee, says that we're all textualists now. If the Supreme Court of the United States does not overrule Roe versus Wade, it is the destruction of the entire conservative legal movement. And all of the activist energy that was poured into getting the right justices on the Supreme Court, that all is destroyed in a moment. And I think the justices know this as well. They've got to know it. If they don't end Roe v.ersus Wade and Casey on this Dobbs case, they end the conservative legal movement that put them on the bench. And they've got lifetime appointments, so some of them don't care. If they even nibble at Roe v.ersus Wade but don't get rid of it, you blow up the conservative legal movement. To paraphrase Ross Douthat from the New York Times, who said, if you don't like the Christian right, wait for the post-Christian right. If you don't like the conservative legal movement that got us to this moment, wait for the post-conservative conservative conservative legal movement that comes from this if Roe and Casey aren't destroyed. Because you know what? Republicans are still going to win elections, but this will be a radicalizing event for the right-wing judiciary and legal movement in ways you can't begin to fathom so it's actually better for the abortionists if you get rid of Roe and Casey now and fight this out at the state level than to get what's going to come if they leave it in place. One more question on this before I hop out of here. Uh, Josh, you're going to be up next. Welcome.
0: Wow. You know, I'm, hi, Eric. I'm sorry, but I feel like you really just answered my question. I mean, I was going to ask about textualism and originalism and and how, you know, like the last caller just talks about how the preamble and, and then the 14th Amendment I feel like the 14th Amendment addresses how the preamble uh, ignored all people you know so so it is addressed but but then unborn babies aren't addressed so right. I was wondering how, how you could uh, mesh those two
2: yeah okay so it, it, it depends on yeah yeah it, so it depends on uh, you, first of all you got to actually take the preamble out of your conversation um and no disrespect to anybody yeah. intended here it's just the Supreme Court, doesn't look at the preamble as binding on anything. It wasn't even debated at the Constitutional Convention. Uh, Madison just wrote it. Um, Everybody gave it a pass and they moved on to the big things. Only after the Constitution was written did Alexander Hamilton say, hey, wait a second, this preamble, it's not binding. We need to be able to bind it, so we need a Bill of Rights. That then leads us after the Civil War to the 14th Amendment. And the question then and the argument is, Is someone who is not yet born, but is a human, entitled to the rights of the Constitution? Because the plain text of the 14th Amendment says a person born. Well, a child still in utero isn't born, so is that child a person? That is an unsettled matter of American law. Justices Thomas and Alito are the biggest advocates of saying, yes, they are a person. They are are embodied with a soul. They are a person. They're entitled. They're the only two members of the Supreme Court right now who articulate that point. It's not even a point within the greater conservative legal movement that is fully embraced. There's a big split there as well um, as to whether or not a, a an unborn child is entitled to the rights of the 14th Amendment and the Constitution because by the plain language of the 14th Amendment, it says the very first words are a person born. So is an unborn child entitled to those rights? Two members of the Supreme Court say yes, seven of them say, nee, we're not so sure, and it's never been settled. Now, I will tell you, one of the reasons we are at the point we are today of having the Dobbs case in the Supreme Court is because of the conservative movement and the pro-life movement uh, making a not just a moral argument but a legal argument as to why Roe and Casey were bad law. And one of the organizations that has helped fund the pro-life cause all these years is Patriot Mobile. They're a Christian conservative cell phone company. They use the same towers that all the other companies use. So you don't have to worry about coverage. If you doubt it, go to PatriotMobile.com. You can see their coverage maps. But they give a portion of their profits to the pro-life cause, the Second Amendment cause, veterans, and first responders. If you're a committed conservative and you want your money used for the cause, you should do business with Patriot Mobile. They want to do business with you, and right now they'll give you free activation if you use my name. You go to PatriotMobile.com slash Eric. That's patriotmobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. Or you can call them. they got 100% U.S.-based customer service. It's 972-PATRIOT or patriotmobile.com slash Eric. Hi there. It is Eric Erickson here. I got to tell you. So this is uh, Tug and Tubin over at CNN. You know, by the way, uh, Chris Cuomo is out at CNN. We will get to that. But uh, Tug and Toobin, uh, his tweet, if you believe that women should have the right to choose abortion. Today's Supreme Court argument was a wall-to-wall disaster. Yeah. Uh, It's going to come down to Amy Coney Barrett, I think, um, as to how far they go. Does she split the baby, (laughs) pun intended, with John Roberts, or does she outright get rid of Roe? And it sounds like she wants to get rid of Roe and Casey, uh, but to do so as narrowly as possible so that it does not then uh, cause a lot of uh, challenges to Obergefell and other previously decided Supreme Court decisions. The amount of talk about religion, though, if I were one of the lawyers, I I would have had to say that the amount of talk about religious versus secular scholars suggests this is in part a religious issue. And again, this court should reverse to neutrality so as not to pick and choose between religions because secularism is in fact a religion. Um, That's my thought. When we come back, though, we got to move on. I'm happy to take your call still, though. 877-973-7425. And you thought these last two years were crazy. Welcome to 2022. It's coming up and nothing makes sense still, especially in business. If you're a small business owner, good luck getting financing from a big bank right now. I can offer you a fantastic solution if you're looking for $750,000 or more in financing for your business. First Liberty Building and Loan. Let's say you want to buy a new building or you want to refi existing debt or you want to buy a company. Basically, you see opportunity for your business to grow, but you've hit a wall with the mega banks getting financing. That's where First Liberty Building and Loan and my friends, the Frost family come in. They solve small business financing problems better than anyone I've ever seen. They say yes, where big banks say no, it's that simple. Look, just do this. Spend 10 minutes with them. Call them, First Liberty Building and Loan. Say, Eric sent you. In 10 minutes, you'll know if you're a good fit for their program. Go to firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. They help small businesses nationwide in all 50 states. firstlibertyga.com.